Hello, I'm Matthew Wolf, and you're listening to my podcast. This podcast is the best bit from my weekly radio show on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from three till four. What you're listening to is taken from live radio, but this is a podcast, which means it is obviously not live. So please do not try and get in contact with any of the live details you may hear me mention throughout the show, as your messages will not be received, but you may still be charged. All of our terms and conditions for getting involved can be found on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. Also, as this is a podcast, some of the information we give about news stories may have been updated or changed since our broadcast went live. The information in this podcast is accurate and correct as of the time the radio show was originally broadcast, but might not now be accurate. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and don't miss the live radio show every Sunday from three till four, where you can get in touch live. And welcome to the podcast. Coming up are the usual two topics that our listeners got in touch on during the hour. For the first topic, I asked the listeners what they think is the acceptable level of risk the UK can take when opening up the country and easing coronavirus restrictions. We discussed the impact of vaccination and also of drugs that can help lower COVID mortality and the effect that they will have on whether the UK is ready to open up in the coming weeks, months and beyond. Later in the show, we discussed a new drug that's been, have just been approved by, by the regulatory bodies in the UK, which helps people lose weight by suppressing their appetite. I asked the listeners whether they think it could be a lifesaver, allowing many more to lose weight who couldn't before, or if it could be dangerous by allowing people with eating disorders to worsen their problem. Good afternoon and welcome to Wizard Radio. I'm Matthew Wolfe and for the next hour and at this time every single Sunday I'll be discussing your thoughts on the biggest current affairs and political stories of the week gone by. Today we'll begin by discussing the comments by the Health Secretary Matt Hancock that he hopes COVID-19 will be something we learn to live with as treatments improve and vaccines are rolled out. I want to know how comfortable you are with that idea and what levels of deaths will be considered acceptable. And later in the show, I want to hear your thoughts on a new obesity drug that reduces appetite. Do you think that this drug can be a saviour that could help improve the lives of people living with obesity? Or is it a dangerous gateway to eating disorders? Contact us. You can tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at WizRadio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rates apply on 07 807 Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details are on our website www.wizardradio.co.uk. This week, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, told the Daily Telegraph that he is hoping that COVID-19 will be a treatable disease that we can live with by the end of this year. He said he hoped it could become like the flu and that both advancements in drugs to treat COVID 
and of course the huge vaccine rollout program currently underway will enable it to be something we can learn to live with. Some positive news about the vaccine has just been announced moments ago as Boris Johnson announced on social media that 15 million people now received the first jab. That is every person in the top four priority groups. The effect of vaccination will determine whether it is possible for COVID to be a disease we learn to live with. But there are three main things that will need to be kept under control. Firstly, the number of people being admitted to hospital for COVID-19 so that the NHS has the best chance of coping. Secondly, the death rate needs to be under control to show that the vaccine is working. And thirdly, and perhaps the most uncertain, is the rate of transmission needs to be under control. This is significant because whilst we know for sure that all the current vaccines in use prevent serious infection from COVID-19, it is only the Pfizer vaccine which has shown to reduce the rate of transmission. This, of course, may change because tests are currently underway on other vaccines to see if they do the same. If they don't, however, and the virus continues to spread, even if it is no longer deadly, problems may arise as allowing the virus to spread allows it more time and more chances to mutate. But Matt Hancock has ruled out a zero COVID approach in the future. Instead, the virus will be something we have to learn to live with as the country gradually opens up. Here is the chief medical officer, Professor Chris Whitty, articulating what an acceptable level of risk may mean. Said last month. The aim of this is to de-risk it as much as possible by the uh, vaccine to the point where actually we get to the stage uh, where the risk is incredibly low relative to where we are now. And we just say, just as we do with flu, where every year, roughly on an average year, about 7,000 people a year die. In a bad year, up to 20,000 people a year die. We accept there is a level of risk that society will tolerate, and we, have, we should tolerate, people die. That's one of the things that happens. And here is Richard Horton, the editor-in-chief of the medical journal The Lancet, also discussing what people will consider acceptable risk, as well as why a long-term strategy is needed by the government population vaccinated and go into winter later this year um, as protected as we can be. But we will see a spike in number of cases going into winter and we have to have a multi-year perspective to this. It's going to take two to three to four years to build up the levels of population immunity to really protect so, us. So you say the words as protected as we can be. Is that as protected as we can be or as protected as we are prepared to be? Right, so we have broadly two choices. We try and suppress transmission as much as possible. This has been called zero COVID. Uh, or we say that that's going to be an impossible dream, a mirage, as Jonathan Sumption has called it. Uh, and instead, we're going to have to accept a certain level of deaths, as you heard Chris Whitty say. In fact, the number of deaths from influenza has been as high as 30,000 in any one year in England. Uh, is that the number that we're going to have to accept? And that's going to be a conversation politicians are going to have to have with the country. So controlling the virus is a scientific issue, but the decision of when the risk is low enough is political. I want your thoughts on when and how gradually the opening up should be in order to ben benefit the country, the economy and people's mental health. So contact us. You can tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Wiz Radio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rates apply on 07807 183538.
Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. And this week, it has been announced that a drug that suppresses appetite has led to some people losing more than a fifth of their body weight, a major international trial has shown. A weekly injection of the drug semaglutide was given alongside advice on diet and fitness. The study, conducted on, on almost 2,000 people, showed an average 15 kilogram weight loss during the 15-month trial. Scientists said the result could mark a new era in treating obesity with even more therapies on the horizon. But as it works by suppressing people's appetites, it's led to some to fear it could be misused by those with eating disorders. Whilst it is likely that it will only be available by prescription, I want to know if this drug scares you or if you feel it can help the UK struggle against an obesity epidemic. Tell me what you think. So for the last time before our first break, you can get in touch in the following ways. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Wiz Radio. On the text, we're 07807183538. Email us, station at wizardradio.co.uk. And all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. So after the break, I'll be speaking to Ethan, my friend who's very interested in, um, in the, the decision the government are making, to hear his opinions on what would be an acceptable level of risk He'll be on the show after the song. So I want to hear your thoughts as well, uh, whether you're going to be responding to him or just telling me your thoughts on our main question. At what stage will COVID-19 be something we accept living with? So as I said, a song coming on now. The song is Megan The Stallion, Cry Baby featuring Baby. That was Megan the Stallion, Crybaby, featuring the baby. So the question that I the question that I asked before the first break is at what stage will COVID-19 become something we can accept living with? This comes as the Health Secretary Matt Hancock told the Daily Telegraph he's hoping that this will be the case by the end of the year. Obviously, that will result in some level of risk because it will be very difficult to completely eradicate the virus. And as I said before the break, we're going to be getting to all of your thoughts on the topic very soon. But right now, we've got my friend Ethan on the line to hear his thoughts on the issue. How are you, Ethan? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. It's great that you're joining us. So I'm going to start by asking you, um, are you comfortable with the idea that COVID in, in future years will just be something we have to live with, even if the risks are significantly lower than they are now? I mean, that is a scary thought, but unfortunately, it's something that we're all going to have to accept. I think particularly, I, I think we'll see the government making quite a point of that. COVID is definitely going to be something that we're going to have to live with. So uh, while it's definitely scary to accept that, that's going to have to be the reality, unfortunately. Yeah, I completely understand that. The fact that we live with thousands of deaths from influenza every year, and maybe this would just be something that's added to that total and something people have to accept. But... Um, do you think the government could perhaps be a, a bit clearer with um, with the level of cases they said they'd be they'd be comfortable with? Because um, it was in the news this week that some Conservative MPs want the government to um, to have um, a, a, a benchmark at what point restrictions can be released, so that people have um, a benchmark, a, a point to aim at, at at which point restrictions will be eased. Do you think that the government could be perhaps a bit more clear? 
Definitely. I think the government response has been lacking clarity really throughout the pandemic and particularly at the moment we're seeing that with a lockdown that really has no clear end in sight. I think it will all depend on how the vaccine rollout, how the vaccine rollout happens and how it comes to an end. But really the government has given very little clarity on how the vaccine rollout will end. We have short term goals, but ultimately there's definitely a lack of a long term plan. And I think that's a big problem and definitely something that the government should be working on, giving a much clearer response to the people who really are right now in a lockdown that um, really has an uncertain end date, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, you spoke there about vaccines and there is some positive news yeah. um, coming out of number 10 just a few moments ago, actually, that the government have actually reached their aim in vaccinating 15 million people uh, with the first dose already, which is definitely positive. It's a, a very high number, um, far higher than um, the numbers per capita that we've seen in Europe. And lots of people have actually said that it's something we should be celebrating. But um, are you at all cautious that this isn't the beginning of the end yet? Or are, are you more optimistic that this can lead to the next phase of our response to the virus? Well, I think that the vaccine is uh, the UK's response to the vaccine has definitely given us some reason for optimism, which we haven't really had in most of the government's response, really. So there's definitely some optimism in the vaccine. But I think uh, 15 million people getting a first dose is really just the start because we know it's not until the second dose that people start to get proper protection. And also we don't know um, at what point it will be opened up to the rest, the rest of the public. There's they're sort of moving down the list of priorities but at what point will everyone be protected to the extent that we can start getting back to back to normal uh yeah at, at, at the moment the government hasn't been completely clear on to what extent the vaccine rollout yeah basically when the vaccine will be available to everyone so while it's a good start and there's some optimism at the moment i think uh there's definitely more clarity needed and we also need uh, swift action from the government in making the rollout available to as many people as possible. But they have made a good start. Thank you very much, Ethan, for joining us. Thanks. So that was my friend Ethan there giving his opinion on how he feels the government have put across their messaging about what will be an acceptable level of risk for us to take. He spoke there about um, the vaccine rollout and how that was quite clear, but how the government could have perhaps been clearer throughout most of the pandemic before then, so that people really had um, an aim in sight as to when lockdown would end. And I think that we've seen criticism from both sides of the political spectrum that the government um, in, during the lockdowns have not put out um, information that when cases are at this level, lockdown will be eased. When transmission is at this level, case um, lockdown and restrictions will be eased. And I feel that personally, that's something that would definitely both increase compliance because people don't have uh, a never-ending lockdown that they feel they have to break because they don't have an end in sight it will also um, create a better sense of um, create almost better morale within the country that there's almost an end in sight and I think that that messaging is is important but that's perhaps deviating from the main point of this topic the idea that there will have to be a risk that people will be taking when the country's opening up and um at, at what level is that risk acceptable? We've got a text in here on that topic from Sammy who says, I'm really uncomfortable with the idea that we're going to live the rest of our lives with the threat of lockdowns because of coronavirus, all because the government doesn't want to try a zero COVID approach. I don't think that is something that we as a country should be comfortable accepting, to be honest. 
Other countries around the world, such as New Zealand, have had a successful zero COVID approach. They had no cases for a while, yet to us in the UK are going to need to accept that COVID will never go away here. I just don't like that Matt, Matt Hancock, I just don't like that Matthew, sorry. Um, it sounds lazy to me and not the approach that we should be taking. Well, Sammy, it's a really interesting text and um, it's one that, it's a view that's echoed by a lot of people, the idea that other countries have done it and um, that we should be doing it too, the idea of completely freezing COVID out. But I disagree with you here. Uh, I know there'll be lots of people that agree with you, Sammy, on the text, but I, I have to say, I'm going to say straight away that I disagree. I think that um, from what I've heard from uh, medical professionals and virologists, that the approach that's happening in New Zealand and Australia and um, other countries that have taken this zero COVID approach is preventative. It's temporary. It can't last forever. And the primary reason for that is because the whole world has not taken that approach. And the fact that there's cases in countries around the world <clears throat> means that if New Zealand and other countries ever want to have visitors from other countries, then their approach won't work unless they continue to put people in hotels for two weeks, which no one thinks is sustainable. So that is the, the primary reason why I think this tactic won't work. But also, um, in order to build up some level of immunity within a population, um, you need vaccines, yes, but also it, it does help to have some gradual level of exposure to the virus. So I think that in the long term, that won't be sustainable. And I have to say that it's a different question to say what level of risk is acceptable. But some people, like I think you there, Sammy, would say that no level of risk is acceptable. And um, whether that's because of the number of people that would die or because of the threat of lockdown, I get where you're coming from. But I do think there's separate answers to both of those points. I think that if you're if, if you don't if you want a zero covid approach because you want zero deaths from the coronavirus, then I personally think that is a bit unrealistic. If we want the, the world to open up again, I think that if you want zero deaths, it, it, it's um, it's not something you should expect. Um, people die for many reasons um, every single year. And um, if deaths are low, uh, let's say within the 1000 to 2000 number every year, then I think that that could, whilst it sounds horrible, because obviously uh, 1000 to 2000, uh, 1000 to 2000 too many, that would be a positive outcome because um, no, pe no person is immortal. And um, like um, Professor Chris Whitty said, 7,000 people die on average each year from influenza. That in some years, that's 20 or 30,000. So um, in my opinion, that's a risk that, um, in my opinion, that would be a positive outcome. But as to the threat of lockdowns, I do see where you're coming from, that what, um, what we heard in our second clip there during my introduction um, from Richard Horton is that the government needs to have an approach where once restrictions are eased, they're eased to the point where they don't need to be reinforced as strictly again. And um, that idea is one that it kind of sits in favour of the zero COVID approach. The idea that we will not need a lockdown again, because if the government um, pursue the, um, the case of trying to keep deaths to a minimum and restrictions to ease, then what happens if we have a very bad winter where there's 20,000 deaths from flu and there's 10,000 and 20,000 deaths from the coronavirus? So there's 40,000 deaths from contagious diseases within the NHS and the NHS is struggling to cope. This could be five, six years from now and um, restrictions could have been gone for three years. But at that stage, other governments saying we're going to have a rule of six around Christmas time to uh, lessen the burden on the NHS? Or are they going to have to say 
well, it's just something we have to live with because flu deaths don't go away just because the coronavirus is here. The two things are going to coexist together, unfortunately. And it's about um, what level of risk that people are willing to take. And that's actually what I'm trying to gauge here um, with this topic. I want to try and understand what level of risk you'd all be acceptable with. So um, we've heard what, what, what Sammy thinks. I'm going to move on to another text now. Um, and, th and this one's from Alexis, who says, I agree with your caller, Ethan, Matthew. Although COVID is really scary, it is so difficult to 100% eradicate cases of any virus, especially seasonal viruses. And I completely agree with you there, Alexis. Uh, Alexis got, sorry, Alexis then goes on to say that we know COVID-19 gets worse in the winter because, what we have, because of what we have seen in the past year. I would accept it being something that we can live with once we are down to single digit cases across the country. At that point, there is such a tiny chance of you personally catching it. It's not causing real issues within the NHS and very few people are going to die from it every year. As long as people who do catch it follow the rules and isolate to stop it from spreading. Alexis, I completely agree with nearly everything in your text there. I completely agree that people will need to isolate um, if they test positive. I think that testing will still be important, especially at testing of people arriving from foreign countries, because obviously the vaccine situation may be different in other countries. That's a whole other issue, which we've actually discussed uh, many times on this show before. But um, the, the fact that the world's only as strong as its weakest link when it comes to vaccination and that it's in our interest to get um, every country vaccinated. But that is besides the point slightly. Um, I'm going back to your text here, Alexis, and I said that I do agree with nearly everything you're saying, that it's going to be something we have to live with. Uh, smallpox is one of the only cases of a virus that has been completely eradicated. Um, but when you think about all the other viruses that are currently cir circulating within the UK, um, we've never had a lockdown before because of measles. Uh, we've never had a lockdown case because of, uh, because of cholera. Uh, these were viruses that used to um, ravage the, the UK in previous centuries. And now um, they still exist. They haven't disappeared, but the numbers are so small that we just live with it. And I do think that that's the state we want to get to with COVID, but I think it will be very difficult because of the fact that um, many people with COVID experience mild or no symptoms whatsoever. It will be difficult to, um, to make sure everyone who has it isolates. And that's what we've seen so far, which is why it is absolutely critical that the current vaccines not only stop serious infection, because, um, well, serious, yeah, not only stop serious infection, but also stop transmission. Because while stopping serious infection will stop deaths and will is ultimately what we want, if the virus is still allowed to spread, it allows, like I said, it allows for greater mutation and that could lead to a strain which is even more infectious or perhaps slightly more deadly. So um, that's why we need to try and stop the spread as well as um, try and lower mortality from the virus. But I think what um, Chris Whitty said and what Matt Hancock said is actually, um, I, I actually agree with. I've, I've criticised Matt Hancock many, many, many times on this show, but I do agree with what he says, that um, the combination of drugs which reduce mortality from COVID and um, the vaccine which reduces mortality and in the case of the Pfizer jab and hopefully other jabs, trials are still ongoing, also reduces transmission. It will create, hopefully, a perfect storm in which cases are much lower and we c it can be something that we can manage. But I think that um, we're just getting a gauge from all of these texts of um, 
what level of transmission people think will be acceptable. And I said myself, I think maybe two, three thousand deaths a year would be something that people would contend with um, rather than having another lockdown, which would create devastating economic and social impacts. Um, that's what I think, maybe perhaps even more. But many of you would perhaps say that that's far too many. Some of you uh, listening may actually think that more death than that, maybe four or five thousand would be acceptable. I don't know, but I want to hear your thoughts. Um, we're going to get one more text uh, from Jack and then we're going to go to a second break. Uh, Jack's got in touch to say, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. But, ev but like everyone else in the country, I've been following the news, watching the briefings, reading articles, etc. about coronavirus. If you've been following the news, you will know that we can't treat coronavirus how we, tweet, how we treat influenza. Yeah, sorry, Jack, I'm just going to um, cut your message in half there and respond to that first half because I think that that's a really important point. Um, we can't treat it like influenza because it doesn't, it doesn't mutate as quickly as influenza, but also... Uh, yeah, it doesn't mutate as quickly. Influenza, there needs to be a new jab for it every single winter. But also, of course, it's a lot more deadly than influenza and it's it's new and it can't be treated the same. So, yeah, that's a really important point that perhaps I should have included in my introduction. But um, I think it's a great point you've made there. So I'm going to continue your message now. Um, if you've been following the news, uh, yeah, you say um, we can't treat coronavirus like influenza because of the mutations. When you reduce COVID numbers but don't eradicate in eradicate it entirely, it mutates to make itself more spreadable and more transmissible to keep it alive. The only way to stop mutations is to absolutely eliminate it so there is no alive COVID. If we don't get to zero COVID at some point, our vaccinations will stop working because the virus will mutate to be to no longer be stopped by the vaccines and we will go in circles. Well, Jack, um, I stopped your message halfway through to say that I agree with what you're saying, but I'd have to say that the second half of the message I think is incorrect. Um, you do not need zero COVID to stop mutations because it works like probability. If there's a large spread of COVID-19, it's got more chances to mutate. If it, there is a, a lower spread, it's got lower chances to mutate. So therefore, you don't need a zero COVID strategy to completely um, eradicate the dangers it poses because if you reduce transmission by a lot, for example, there's maybe like 2,000 new cases in a winter in 2023. Then that only gives it that that gives COVID a far, um, far less chances to be able to mutate. Right now, we're seeing 2,000 new cases a day uh, at the peak. We that there was far, far more than that. There was hundred. There were thousands of cases every day. So the more it spreads, the more chances it has to mutate. And if you get to a smaller number um, of cases, it gives COVID less chances to mutate. And one, one thing that we also need to um, bear in mind is that um, vaccines can respond to new mutations. Uh, it would take between a few weeks and a few months for them to slightly model uh, the vaccine to respond to new variants. And whilst that does cause a delay in the pipeline and it, needs the, it means people that have already been vaccinated would have to be vaccinated again, it isn't... Um, it isn't something that will completely uh, derail the whole effort. So I think that's one thing to bear in mind. And um, one last thing um, before we go on to our second break is uh, you talk about um, how COVID mutates to become more deadly and spread quicker. And that is something that um, is true. It, it evolves it to become um, more transmissible 
And so far, what we've seen in the the new variants, the South African variant and uh, the variant from here in the UK, is that um, the mutations have made the virus more transmissible, um, not necessarily um, more deadly. Um, we don't know if that could be the case in the future, but um, it is an, an important distinction from influenza because the variants we see in influenza every year, whilst it mutates very quickly, it's less like it, it, its mutations uh, don't necessarily mean it, it spreads quicker. It just means that it doesn't respond to the current vaccine in use, which is why there's a new vaccine for, influ for influenza um, every year. So I think you've raised a, a host of really interesting points there, Jack. Um, many of them are correct, but I do disagree with um, the point that um, zero COVID is needed to stop dangerous mutations. I do not think that is entirely accurate, but um, it was a great text. Uh, thanks for getting in touch. And everyone listening, I want to hear m many more of your texts and your opinions on the question that I'm asking all of you of what is an acceptable level of risk that people should be willing to take for COVID to become something we can accept living with? At what stage will it be something that people just view as normal, that we can go about our lives as normal with it existing? That's the question I'm asking you. We've had some great tech so far and hopefully we've got some more after the break. But right now it's Cardi B and up. Welcome back to Wizard Radio, I'm Matthew Wolf. A reminder of the question I'm asking you today. The main topic which we'll be discussing for the first half an hour of the show is at what stage will COVID-19 become something we can accept living with? Coming with that question, I've asked all of you, um, at what, what, I've asked all of you um, what you feel is the acceptable level of risk that we can take with COVID before we open up. And this is even with vaccines. So, um, yeah, we've had a variety of texts on the issue um, covering many, many opinions and many people on um, many people want a zero COVID approach. But Matt Hancock has said that that will be um, unrealistic. And I agree with him. And um, lots of our listeners have also agreed with him. Uh, just a reminder of the, sh the I'll say that again, just a reminder of the topic we'll be discussing later in the show is um, a new diet drug that can help um people with obesity lose weight has been approved by the um the drugs regulators in the uk and i want to know if you think it's dangerous or a savior because of the fact that it works by um limiting people's appetite so we'll get onto that topic in about 15 minutes uh, maybe 10 now um but right now we're going to go back to the first topic of what you feel is an acceptable level of risk um for to take with covid19 when we open up and i've got a text here from will who says I accept that zero COVID isn't realistic because even if we were to eradicate it entirely in the UK, as soon as we are, we reopen the borders, other countries that have the virus and haven't been able to be as effective in stopping it will spread it internationally. But this is why it is so important that everyone who can possibly get vaccinated in the UK gets vaccinated. This anti-vaxxer movement is just as scary as I thought it might be. COVID can exist as long as people or as few people as possible, are dying from it. And the only way to really ensure this is to make sure everyone who can have the vaccine has it. There are whole communities in the UK that are not getting the vaccine, and we need to do something about that. Well, Will, that's a great text. I think that um, one thing that perhaps we haven't raised enough so far on the topic is that the reason that... Um, as, the reason um, that stopping the spread is so important, as well as... Um, 
making the virus less deadly isn't just to stop mutations. That is probably the main reason. But the other reason is that many people don't have va- w- will not get the vaccine. And whether that's completely be- not their fault because um, they're allergic, many people have genuine allergies to um, vaccines, uh, whether it's because um, or whether it's because um, they've chosen not to have the vaccine, despite that being a stupid decision, they should still not be excluded from protection because of that decision. And um, those people would be at risk. Um, one thing that I would like to bring up, and I think is a, is a really actually a positive news story, is that um, data that came out this week suggested that the current uptake of the vaccine has been 95%, which is far higher than... Um, people said in surveys that um yeah far higher than um was circulating in surveys when uh the vaccine was still being approved and i think that is really really encouraging news perhaps that number may drop slightly when the vaccine is offered to people in um lower age groups maybe the the uptake is higher because older people um see it as the vaccine the virus is perhaps more threatening to them and Perhaps younger people would feel that it's not as much of a, a threat to them, so may not get the vaccine for that reason. Um, that may be the case. Hopefully it won't be. But I think at first, right now, we can we can definitely celebrate the fact that um, the uptake's been high so far. So um, I hope that maybe puts you at ease a bit, Will. But um, of course, the, the people whose job it is to try and um, control the spread of false information and anti-vax um, propaganda on social media need to remain vigilant. Um, to this threat because it can be very damaging um it can it, yeah it can definitely be very damaging um if it's spread and uh, a large a large proportion of people do end up not taking the vaccine that hasn't been the case so far and we just have to hope uh, that it continues to be the case so yeah um thanks for that text there will um but i'm going to move on to another text here and this one's from tammy who says some people disagree disagree with me on this but i think when we get to a point whereby coronavirus isn't causing non-COVID deaths, for example, it's not overloading the hospitals so people with other health issues can be can still be cared for, illnesses aren't becoming prolonged and the chances of catching COVID in hospital is reduced and it isn't hurting the NHS anymore, then I think we can accept living with it. One of the tragedies of COVID-19 is the fact that it has caused those non-COVID deaths, people dying not of coronavirus, but as a result of its drain on resources. Once we can care for people again, then I do do become less worried. Well, Tammy, you raise an interesting point, and I agree partly with what you're saying. The the total deaths in the UK this year were about 120, 130,000 more than last year. I'm talking about 2020. Um, And that was the biggest increase in deaths in between years since World War II. And whilst 100,000 deaths or a bit less were listed as COVID, the fact that the increase was 120 or even greater suggests that it wasn't just people with COVID-19 that died because of the virus. Like you said, it was people with um, cancers that couldn't have um, treatments. It was people who had um, non-essential surgeries that in the end ended up becoming uh, ended up becoming um, becoming essential because unfortunately it led to it led to it led to them dying because those operations were cancelled. Um, also, I'm sure that what contributes to those numbers is the increased rate of of suicides due to the mental health impact of lockdown and of the virus. So, I think you raise a really interesting point that um, when we get to a point where um, the virus does not have an added increase on 
people in hospitals, then it can become acceptable to live with it. But I do think that um, that may be a benchmark that's perhaps a bit too low. I think that um, just coping with people in hospital with COVID may not be enough because that could still result in 10, 20, maybe even more thousand extra deaths a year. And whether that's something we're willing to accept or not, in my opinion, I think we shouldn't really accept that. I think we can accept maybe like I said, two, three, four, maybe even five, six, seven extra, 7,000 extra deaths a year from COVID. But any more than that, I think that um, shouldn't be accepted. And I think that we should hope for better with the rollout of vaccines and added treatments. So yeah, um, thanks for that text there, uh, Tammy. But um, I do disagree with you partly. And um, yeah, thanks for getting in touch. But I'm going to move on to a message here from Kelly. And Kelly, you're going to be the last, you're going to have the final say on this topic. So um yeah, here's your message. Um, Matthew, we can't live the rest of our lives with the threat of lockdowns, quarantines, having to stay in quarantine hotels, not being able to travel half the world and, and, and not being able to travel half the world. I completely agree with you there, Kelly. We need to get to a point where we can live our lives. I'm fine living my life with masks. I actually quite like wearing a mask. I'm fine with more hand washing, sanitising, etc. I think we should have been doing that for a long time anyway, taking a tip from what they do in Asia. But what I don't accept is having to take time out of our lives these days, staying at home when we want to actually do something. Well, Kelly, I completely, completely agree with you. Uh, as well as the people's lives uh, being lost from the virus, lots of people's lives have been put on hold for a year. And obviously that comes secondary to the lives being lost um, and from the people dying from the virus. But it is still a significant issue. The constraints on people's liberty, the fact that Many people's, a year of people's lives, two years of people's lives are just not being able to be enjoyed. Things that people wanted to do, not being able to be done. And that is, no one enjoys lockdown and no one thinks that lockdown can really be a sustainable thing that anyone ever wants to go through again. Not just because of the economic impact, but because of the social impact. People want to enjoy their lives. They want to see friends. They want to travel the world. They want to go to parties. They want to do all these things. And I think that, you can look at you can look at it two ways. You can come from the school of thought that lockdown's too bad, um, we can't have it anymore, um, and for that reason we have to accept a higher number of deaths from COVID nineteen in the future, maybe ten thousand extra deaths even with the vaccine. You can say that, but also you can come at it from the other point of view and say lockdown can't be a threat, so we need to completely eradicate COVID. And I think that um, the latter is the better alternative but i don't think it will be possible i think we're going to have to settle for the former um to have maybe a, a certain number of deaths from covid each year i think that twenty thousand would be too high i i really do um we see twenty thousand deaths from flu each year in the worst years and um maybe we'll see that from covid in the future in the worst years of covid and maybe that will be acceptable but i think that um in the future, the government really will be able to, with better treatments, with millions and millions of pounds going into research for vaccines and for better drug treatments, that um, COVID will be something we live with and our lives will be able to return to normal. But there will be some level of deaths from COVID each year and it will be somewhere near the numbers from the, from the flu, maybe more. And that's nothing, that's not something people want. And of course, it's not the best outcome possible, but perhaps it's something people have to settle with um, when you think about the impact that lockdown brings and whether we have to live our lives in fear 
and live our lives with lockdowns uh, forever, which no one wants. So a compromise will need to be struck. And I think it's up to um, the government and scientists to try and make sure that they minimise the impact as much as possible for when our lives return to normal, which hopefully they will as soon as possible, because no one, people need to get their lives back on track. People, lockdown will not last forever and people need to re, almost reclaim their lives from uh, from lockdown. And um, yeah, I think that's quite a good place to, to end it. We're going to get our final song of the hour on now. It's, um, it, it's Hoops. It, sorry. Yeah, it's Hoops by Wolf. And after that, um, we'll be discussing the second topic of the hour of the question of is this new obesity drug that curves your appetite dangerous or is it a saviour? Welcome back to Wizard Radio. That was Wolf with Hoops. So the question I'm asking you for the remaining 10 minutes of the show is, is the new obesity drug, semglutide, is the new obesity drug, semglutide, dangerous or a saviour? The drug works by um, curbing people's appetite and it can be, it's, it's been seen in trials to um, help clinically obese people uh, lose weight um, very quickly and much uh, more easily uh, than many other diets and I want to know whether you think this is a good thing or whether it can encourage eating disorders and be in fact dangerous so we're going to get straight into the messages here because we don't have that much time and um, this text here is from Danielle who says I think this new obesity drug could be a lifesaver but only when the reasons that someone is obese is because they simply eat too much food obviously a lot of people are obese not because they eat too much food but because they have real health issues that make it difficult for their body to regulate their weight a lot of people like to forget that about obesity. What I wouldn't want to happen is people being is people being given this drug to stop eating just as a reaction to them being obese when their food intake isn't the actual problem. Well, Danielle, that's a great text. It's a great um, it's a great point you make. I'd say that in probably the majority of cases, the reason people are obese is because they eat more than they burn, and um, that's why they're obese, whether that's their fault or not. Due to many people simply can't because uh, loads of situations whether they um they can't leave the house or they've got to care but there are there are multiple reasons as to why someone may be obese but um like you said one that often gets overlooked is um the way people's body regulates uh, regulates food whether they've got um a, a slow a ultra slow metabolism whether it's much more difficult for them to lose weight but the fact is that in any case if you if you're obese and you want to lose weight eating less whether that's the reason you're obese in the first place or not, will help you lose weight. And um, the drug will help you do that. Whether that's overall healthy for you or not uh, is, is a different question. But hopefully this drug will be one that's only given to people by prescription, by doctors who um, have seen people's situation and um, will give it to them if it has a good um if it will be effective for them based on their situation. So that's what I'm hoping will happen. But um, you've raised an interesting point there, Danielle, as to um, the different situations that could lead to people being obese. So yeah, thanks again in touch. Um, I'm gonna move on now to a, te to a text here from Zach. He says, hearing about this drug really scares me, Matthew. If this is the new era of obesity care, then I don't like this era. The drug suggests that our doctors think that stuffing people with drugs is the way to look after people not educating them and actually caring for them and giving proper treatment. And I'm also scared about what happens if this drug gets into the wrong hands. 
and people who have real body image issues starting to take the drug to stop their appetite. This is a drug that shouldn't just shouldn't exist. As someone who has people in my family who suffer with body image and have mental health issues related to their weight, I hate that this is in our society now. Well, Zach, thanks for getting in touch. And um, you raise a host of important issues. Um, when we proposed this topic, I knew there'd be um, two sides to this. Um, and you come in heavily on the idea that this drug is dangerous. The idea that, as you said, um, it can be really damaging if it gets into the wrong hands. And at the moment, there aren't that many treatments for um, people with obesity, um, other than um, some operations that can re that can remove um, large areas of fat, which are only offered to people as a last last um, last case scenario. So there aren't really many um, things that doctors can do other than tell people to um, have better lifestyles and um, make better lifestyle choices. And um, it has to be said that there is a problem with obesity in this country, but there's also a problem um, with body image. The the mental health issue that's got the highest mortality rate is anorexia, which of course is a, a very severe body image um, body image um, issue. And I do think that um, if this drug gets into the wrong hands, um, it could be very very problematic. Um, of course, that will not be the aim, but we've seen in the past with. Um, something completely not connected but another drug that um got into the wrong hands that was meant uh originally just for cancer patients who are terminally ill the drug oxycotin in america um got onto the streets and led to an epidemic of people um addicted to opioids in america uh, killing thousands and thousands of people and obviously that's a completely different um situation with a completely different issue but it does show that drugs intended for specific use do, um, in some cases, get into the wrong hands. So I think that's something that people need to be um, wary of with this drug, because it can be very dangerous, as you say there, Zach, um, in the wrong hands. But yeah, thanks for getting in touch. It's a, it was a really interesting um, message, a really interesting point you brought up there. Um, but I'm going to move on now to a message from um, a message from Sophie. Yeah, I just couldn't find the name there. And this message is from Sophie. And Sophie's going to be the last message um, of the show today. So uh, just thanks for all your messages so far. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm going to move on now and read Sophie's message. So she says, I have a real issue with this drug, Matt. People need to take responsibility for their weight. And if this drug becomes widespread, it becomes the easy option. You no longer need to control yourself. You can just take a drug that makes you not want to eat so much anymore. I don't like that. Also, what about after you stop taking the drunk, the drunk, the drug? Because I assume you wouldn't take it for the rest of your life. So if you take the drug to reduce your intake, then stop taking it. You'll go back to eating in your old pattern of eating and get obese. I just don't think this will work long term. Well, Sophie, I do disagree with you there. I think that if someone takes this drug, lose, loses their appetite and therefore loses a lot of weight, um, once they're off the drug, they'll obviously be smaller. So they'll have... Um, less of an appetite um so i don't think that would perhaps be that much of an issue and i also disagree with you on the idea of people needing to take responsibility i think that um the, it's a fact that obesity kills thousands of people every single year due to the um related illnesses the fact that you've got a far higher chance of uh, getting cancer if you're obese that um the fact that it could lead to diabetes many things that can be damaging to people's health and um whether people lose the weight because they um, have great willpower and um, do it without a drug and just exercise more and eat less, or whether they 
um, lose lose the weight by um, lose the weight by um, taking this drug. I don't think it matters too much because I think the ultimate outcome is what matters that people are healthier. One thing I do agree with you on though is that it may not be the longest term um, the longest term solution because yes, people are healthier when they lose weight, whether they've done it based on the drug or whether they've done it with their lifestyle changes. But I think that um, the things that come along with losing weight, for example, um, taking up a sport or um, having a healthier diet, not just eating less, but um, making sure what you do eat is healthier. I think all those things uh, contribute to longer term health. And I think that this drug can perhaps be um, useful if, if it's prescribed in specific cases so that it doesn't get into the wrong hands. And also if it's prescribed along with advice on healthy eating and sports and lifestyle changes. So I think that's that's something really important and something to um, to really consider. I think that's a good place to kind of sum up this topic. So um, everyone for getting in touch throughout the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you missed any of the show, it will be available for the next seven days on our website, www.wizardradio.uk forward slash repeats. Go to Sunday on there, but also the show is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and and um, Amazon Music and all the audio providers. If you search Matthew Wolf, the podcast is titled Your Views on the News with Matthew Wolf. Give us a follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple and leave a review. It really helps the podcast and I'd really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, up next is Madeline Molly, but first it's time for the news and the weather. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.